This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat. Welcome to yet another episode of Tao Unbound. I'm Ido Aharoni, your host, and today uh, it is a true privilege and pleasure to host the Dean of the Faculty of Law, Professor Ishai Blank. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome. It's a you great know, pleasure to be here. When I was a student here at Tel Aviv University, which was many, many moons ago, it was practically impossible to get into the Faculty of Law. It was so prestigious. And indeed, over the years, really your faculty is now setting the tone in, in really throughout the country. And uh, so uh, it's, it, it is a, quite an honor to have you here. It's Thank an you. honor to be here. And it's a real honor to actually be the dean of the faculty of law where I grew up and where I got my basic training. Um, and you're right in saying that it was barely impossible. But I would say, you know, the standards haven't lowered. We're just as good, if not even as better as, uh, as we were. Uh, we're still training the best lawyers, uh, you know, half of the Supreme Court justices, including the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, are graduates of Tel Aviv University Law School. Um, you know, the top partners in the top law firms, people in the high-tech industry, um, you know, public officials, uh, you know, you name it, uh, our graduates are there. Now, um, before we, we talk about that, um, you know, the specifics of, of your work as the dean, Uh, tell us a little bit about your your uh, your own personal background you mentioned that you're a product of Tel Aviv University but tell us more than that we'd like to know where were you born and about your upbringing right so so actually you know I am a product um, of Tel Aviv University and I'm also a product of Tel Aviv so I grew up in the city very close to Rabin Square which was then Kikam uh, al Um, but not in the regular milieu. I actually grew up in, a, in an Orthodox uh, um, family, uh, not ultra-Orthodox, but, you know, religious Zionism. Um, I went to a religious school. I actually never studied with girls in my class. I, it was always segregated from day one till I got to the army. Um, in high school, I went to a yeshiva. Um, and, and we should also mention for our listeners who are not familiar with the Israeli educational system that... Uh, what Professor Blank is describing is that he was actually part of a separate independent educational system, which is the religious orthodox. Right. Mamlachti uh, Dati, we call it. It's right. a national religious. Um, it does have a lot of autonomy, so it sets, you know, its own uh, curriculum. Um, it's not like the Haredi education, obviously. I mean, we study math, English, I would say very Good. High level. High level, very high level. You know, with the graduates of, of this uh, um, schooling system um, have excelled uh, almost everywhere. Um, but it is still, it's rather insolent. You know, you are kind of in a closed community. Um, you're not really encouraged to play with your, non with your non-religious, um, you know, um, kids um, in, in, in the street. Um, It wasn't easy, I have to tell you. I mean, because the more you kind of... And I started questioning and having serious theological doubts when I was probably 10 or 12. Um, and, you know, the kind of... You, you really, I really dealt with this split in myself, which I, on one hand, I really had a lot of faith, but things didn't work for me. You know, I had no, more I, and more questions. No, I, 
as as those questions were were coming up, were you able to share them with people, or was this something like you kept as a secret? No, so I, I you know I shared them. I would say that not all of them were well received with my rabbis. <laughs> so, so you know, some of them would call my parents and tell them that I'm having these heretic thoughts. Um, but I think that you know when when then I realized my interest in law. I figured that a lot of my interest in law was because of this conflict between two systems, uh, between two normative systems. One which was the religious system, which I grew up with, and the other one was the secular law, which I also grew up with. You're part of a community, you know, you're unlike, again, the Orthodox, which are very secluded, the modern Orthodoxy or the religious Zionism is very well integrated. And this tension between these two legal systems you know, even till today is a thing that motivates my my scholarship and my constant interest in law. Yeah, and we, we will get to that definitely because this is a very intriguing part in your CV. Uh, the <coughs> fact that you're interested in administrative law and and, uh, and urban law, and mm-hmm. these, these are all fascinating issues. Now, were there any people in your family that, that came from the field of law? No, none. So, you know, actually very, you know, it's often the kids choose the profession where they see. And I would say that my father had nothing but despise for the law. So for him, uh, you know, lawyers were unproductive and he was an engineer and he actually expected me to become a real scientist. So, you know. I must say about something about this because in preparation for our, our podcast today, I did something that was motivated by the belief that we have too many lawyers in Israel. Exactly. And I think that this is the sentiment you're talking about because we are all about security and military and people have a disregard for you know, <coughs> the, the importance of that, that kind of work. <clears throat> and so I checked the list of lawyers per capita per countries. And it turns uh-huh. out that Israel is not even in the top 50. It turns out the United States is leading the world in the number of attorneys per capita. And so the whole notion that we have too many lawyers is actually not backed by numbers. Well, you know, I would say that still we have we have many lawyers and I'm it's very hard to say whether you have too many lawyers or not enough lawyers. And also I think that having a legal training is very different than being a lawyer. Exactly. And a legal training is actually a great training to do whatever you want. I know. My own daughter studied law and she never practiced. Right. And, you know, and I would say that many of our graduates, um, since again, they're so well coveted by everyone. So the world is open for them. So they can become lawyers. They can become uh, high tech uh, entrepreneurs. They can become business advisors. I mean, they can really do or they can become, you know, writers. We have um our, you know, some of our, our graduates are artists and writers and the legal training, the way especially we do it in Tel Aviv, which isn't just about the black letter of the law, but it's about the principles. It's about moral philosophy. It's about political theory. So all these things just make you a better citizen, someone who's more capable of, you know, just dealing with the world. Now we knew, and now we're moving fast forward post your military service, and so you decide to go and study law. What was your motivation then? Were you thinking of becoming a practitioner, 
or a scholar? So, you know, I didn't actually know. So what I knew was I was interested in a ton of things. I was hesitating between real science, you know, uh, chemistry, biology. This was kind of thing that attracted me. I also wanted to be an architect and I also wanted to be a philosopher. So I just couldn't make up my mind. I said, okay, I'm going to do law. It's very, very prestigious. You know, my parents weren't thrilled because it wasn't real science, but they were okay with it. And I said, okay, I'm just going to take as many courses as I can. And then I eventually um, fell on philosophy and law. So I did a dual degree because I really also wanted to deal with the world of ideas in its abstract form. Um, and throughout the study, I didn't know which field was going to take over the other one. But I do remember that after kind of a few classes, I said to myself, well, that looked like a good life to be in the academia. Um, so I knew that it would be an option that I would like to choose, uh, at least to, to examine, uh, even if I didn't, you know, choose it eventually. And I told myself, okay, let's see what you need to do in order to have a PhD in a really good uh, law school or in a really good university. Um, and that kind of guided me through, uh, through my law school um, and through my philosophy degree. And what was your area of, uh, of research in your, in your dissertation? So um, it was public law, generally speaking. Actually, at first, so I went to Harvard Law School to do my, my master's and my PhD. And even then, I still wasn't clear on what was exactly interesting. I knew that it would pub be public law, that is constitutional law, administrative law, something like that. I knew that I wasn't about you know, deals and, and contracts and corporations. But when I encountered um, the field of urban law, something clicked. And immediately I knew that this was what I wanted to do. In retrospect, I think it was also because of my interest in architecture and in the space that we inhabit. And I think, again, that kind of going back to my childhood, it was because of the way um, communities in Israel are spatially structured, meaning, you know, you can share the same space, but actually you have the rules of the community, so you won't go in a particular place. And if you look at the map of Israel, you can see how people are distributed according to their ethnicity and religiosity and ideology. Um, and that kind of really hit a chord with me. And I said, okay, I'm really going to see what was the role of the law in organizing the society, in making our cities work or fail. So it, when, when, um, when you concentrated on, on urban law, uh, what is the importance of the political structure? Because we know, for example, you know, my experience in, in uh, the United States, and I served as a diplomat in both New York and L.A., and I know how different the political systems are. And, and I'm sure it affects... The, the local version of the law. Right. So I think that one of the, the intriguing things about um, local law or urban law or local government law, the way we call it in Israel, is that we have in Israel a really strong um, unitary ideology. What does that mean? That, you know, because of the way that Israel was formed with a very strong centrist government, people tend to think that local governments don't have a lot of power. So that everything is set by the central government, again, because of the focus on security and borders, etc. But in reality, local governments determine a lot. So it's not by coincidence that if you walk in Tel Aviv and if you walk in Bnei Brak, or if you walk in Kfar Ara or if you walk in Ranana, 
they look completely different. And it's not just because of central policies, but actually because local governments decide, you know, whether you can sell pork or you cannot sell pork, whether businesses will be open on Saturday or not, whether you will build, you know, small houses or high rises. And all these things really make the whole difference. And that's what I was interested in. Now, would you say that the autonomy of local government had increased over the years or decreased? It's a great question. So actually, the research that I'm now doing and I'm about to publish it is called The Principle of Local Autonomy. Um, and one of the things is the real history there. So as I told you, we started off with a real kind of centrist mamlachti in Hebrew ideology that Ben-Gurion, of course, kind of was the main um, perpetrator, where you need a central, strong central... How, how would you uh, translate mamlachti into... Mamlachti, that's really hard. You could say... I, I heard statism. Statism, etatism, maybe in French. You could say, you know, just very strong central government that has an ethos of, of a melting pot, um, that has an ethos of even sanctifying some elements of the state. Um, and by necessity, you weaken the local governments. And in our case, it was the army that was put in the center of statism. It was the army, but it was also, for example, the Ministry of Interior, right? So the Ministry of Interior determines everything. The Ministry of Education determines everything. So instead of having a decentralized policy, where, for example, like in the US, you know, in the United States, you have local boards of education. So each locality actually determines also its own curriculum. In Israel, you have, again, like the French model, a very strong ministry of education that determines education for everyone. You would have a strong ministry of interior that would determine the policy for everyone. That means that a lot of the powers that actually were in the hands of cities and other municipalities during the mandate period, before the establishment of Israel, and even during the Ottoman period, were taken away by the government of Ben-Gurion, and that was kind of mamlachtiyut or, or statism. Um, so I would say that the first, you know, couple or three decades are characterized by very strong mamlachtiyut or statism, but then this model kind of slowly crumbles. Um, and with the rise um, of the turn, you know, in 1977, of the Likud government and kind of the political upheaval, there is also a turn for more decentralization, more um, understanding of the power of localities, both to economically compete, so you would have them compete against each other in order to kind of, you know, better their services, so people would move to their area, so they would actually offer better services, better education, better, um, you know, um, uh, community services, more parks, etc. And also would allow for some kind of a multiculturalism or pluralism. So each locality would look a little different and would allow for the different communities and the different ethnicities, different religions to actually flourish each in its own sphere. And I think this was also combined with um, general, more of a general openness of Israel to the world. Right. Because at that time, if you remember, we started getting international content from television. Uh, we Israel really became part of the international community, whereas before that, we were pretty much physically isolated and mentally isolated from the rest right. of the world. Right, definitely. So this, again, you know, it, it kind of correlates with also a backtrack from the socialist ideology 
Um, but it also had its prices, right? Because what we call in the literature balkanization, which is kind of the fragmentation of society, is also produced by that. So the more you have local identities, the more Tel Aviv is different than Nebrak, than Jerusalem, than Ranana, than Taibe, also people start maybe feeling less connected to each other. Now, can you say a few words about the role of the Brits and the British mandate in all of that? Because you mentioned Tel Aviv. We know that Tel Aviv, even the physical layout of Tel Aviv was greatly influenced by the Brits. Right. So, you know, the Brits had um, what they call like an indirect rule policy, which means that they weren't like the French when they kind of got to an area and immediately wanted to transform it. The Brits were kind of trying to go with the flow. Um, and part of that was giving a lot of local autonomy. Okay, so this is why they said, okay, our villages, let them run their own way and not even have democratic elections. On the other hand, Jewish cities had democratic elections. So the way that the Brits did it was like recognizing the differences, letting a lot of, um, I would say, freedom, or you could also say some of that was neglect. Um, and each community was kind of running its own um, thing, very little central anything, you know, there was no um, taxation, no income tax. Um, until 1944, there was actually no general income tax. So there was not also a lot of money to then distribute to the various systems. You know, even hospitals were kind of municipal hospitals. Uh, and we still have that as remnant, where Ichilov, for example, you know, is actually a municipal hospital. You kind of try to ask yourself, where does that come from? And it comes from the mandate period, where a lot of those things were run by the localities. If they had money, they had better services. If they didn't, they had terrible services, if at all. Um, and the kind of this is also the reaction of Ben Gurion was no, no, no. We want to build here, you know, a melting pot. We want to build here a nation. It's a nation building project. So we need to centralize everything to get it in the heads of government. A lot of money distributed in order to enforce kind of a more central policy. Um, so you can really see the history uh, until today in a way. Now, you've been very outspoken about the 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 crisis of let's call it the constitutional crisis i believe it's more than constitutional crisis i think it's social and political crisis i agree and i think that at the at the core of the crisis is the inability of israeli leadership throughout the the years from ben gurion all the way to today <clears throat> to present a vision to the israeli people that goes beyond survival um there is no real uh you know uh strategy to galvanize and motivate and energize Israelis for generations to come because everything's centered around the need to survive. The question is, how do you see the legal system? Uh, what was the role of the legal system in all, all of this? But in particular, you know, I know a lot of the discussion today is about the <coughs> Supreme Court, but it goes way beyond that. So again, great question. And let me kind of try to touch it from an angle that I'm sure the listeners maybe have heard less. You know, many people talk about very important things, you know, such as the lack of constitution and the various other, maybe, you know, the court taking too much power, parliament not doing enough. And I want to take it, you know, tackle it from a slightly different uh, angle. And that is the weakening of our democratic institutions. And for me, 
but you know, I think that many would agree with me, kind of the basic democratic institutions of the society are often local governments. You know, de Tocqueville in his democracy in America, you know, a French guy traveling to the US in the 19th century. What strikes him is what he calls the schoolhouse of democracy, which are localities. This is where citizens congregate. This is where cities actually have a way of influencing, right? I mean, they their voice actually means something. It isn't diluted by, you know, millions and millions of voices. Often these are small communities where your voice really makes an impact. You can meet your council member. You can go to town hall meetings. There are a lot of mechanisms that actually incorporate lay people in decision making. And we've neglected that. We haven't taken enough attention of that. And again, studies show that when you don't have this schoolhouse for democracy as vibrant and active, the trust in the central democracy also falls. So I think that we really need to rejuvenate our local democracy, make it work. Actually, by the way, in various polls, people put more faith in local governments than in the central government. So they know it at heart. We need to even give it more. So first of all, strengthen local democracy. Give more power, for example, to the council members vis-a-vis -vis the mayor, because we have a slight imbalance. In Israel, we have very powerful mayors and weak councillors. I would say, let's give more power to the council, which is also democratically elected. Second, give more autonomy. But by more autonomy, I don't mean just more power to localities. Autonomy comes also with responsibility. So it means let's give the people the power to control, you know, their kind of local sphere, determine more how the money is distributed, you know, whether they want, again, kind of a more religious lifestyle, a more secular lifestyle. But again, autonomy comes with responsibility, which means that you cannot ignore any minority in your community. In an article that I've written, I called it Islands of Pluralism. That is that even though localities that are often homogeneous, you know, they're Haredim or Arab or secular or lefty or right-wing, you know, and all these kind of distinctions, each locality still has minorities. And part of being autonomous also means res being responsible to the minorities within you. And autonomy, in my kind of rendition of the concept, is not just negative autonomy, do whatever you want, but it's also being responsible to your region, being responsible, for example, not allowing for a very rich city to be just near very impoverished, you know, rural area or other localities. Autonomy also means recognizing the autonomy of the other one, enabling them also to express themselves. So it requires some redistribution of wealth some regional collaboration in many, many respects. So my understanding kind of autonomy both gives a lot of power to localities, but gives them a lot of responsibility as well. And I think this is an exciting vision in the sense of recognizing the differences among us, but also making it work so we can keep on living with each other, not just by ignoring one another. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I sense... Uh, some optimism in your voice. I'm always optimistic. Because, <laughs> you know, you, you laid out a, a beautiful vision, really. And uh, and I'm sure that many of our listeners and viewers are, are intrigued by it because they haven't thought about it. So, first of all, thank you for that. Thank you. The question is, more practical, um, what, do you, how, what needs to be done to make it happen and what are the chances that given, given the inherently built-in deficiencies of the Israeli system, 
you will actually succeed. Great. So, you know, as a lawyer, I would also, you know, of course, we have the social problems and the political larger one. But as a legal matter, you know, one of the things that is actually missing is a basic law that would define uh, and, and kind of consolidate the authorities of localities. One of the amazing things, you know, we have many, many basic laws, and some of them touch on rather insignificant issues. On the other hand, you know, the entity that controls so much of our life, the local government, it controls, you know, education and health and, and the, the, the environment and, and religious affairs and all these things, you know, it's up for the parliament to take and give as much as it wants authorities and including budgets. These things need, again, kind of when we structurally think of, when we structurally think about what we need, then we need to think. Do we need more power? Do we want more powerful local governments or do we want them less powerful? Let's sit together and think about it. My view is that we want them, again, powerful but responsible. Let's have a different view. Let's think about how, again, we protect minorities that live in, you know, in, in localities that are kind of more homogeneous. Let's think about division of wealth because we have a lot of unequal um, division or distribution of wealth. We have really rich localities and very poor ones. How do we make that work? Again, how do we make regions work? I've written a lot about that. Many of my colleagues written. So we have these propositions. We have kind of ways to go and to move forward beyond the deadlock that we seem to be in. Now, uh, when you compare Israel and municipalities in Israel to other countries, uh, are there any places that you would uh, urge our listeners and our viewers to read about and to, to take a look at to either get inspiration or to look at what not, what not. not to do? So, first of all, I would say let's not look at regimes such as um, China and Russia where local governments are just servants of the central government. This is one of the things that's really important. I mean, there is a correlation between a strong environment national democracy and local democracy. Only in places that, you know, cultivate local democracy, you also have flourishing central democracies. So let's make sure our local democracy work. I would look everywhere, including, you know, like telltales of what not to do. But, you know, very flourishing local democracies. I would say that the US, at least some of it has its really works well. Scandinavian countries, um, you know, have constitutional protections for local democracy. And again, we see how this is kind of the bedrock. Um, and often it really inculcates people to have what we call civic um, qualities. They learn that their involvement matters. They learn that they can take things in their own hand and not just, you know, by anarchism, but actually by working with the institutions of the government, of the local government. And once they see in their own eyes that they can make an impact, that, you know, it's not that they're disempowered, that they can actually, you know, push forward whatever policy that they want and then pay the price. It was good. It was bad. It worked. It didn't work. Not blaming anyone else, but actually taking responsibility over what they did. This is the best, again, kind of schoolhouse for democracy and also how to learn with, to work, to live with each other. Right. I mean, we don't just tell our members of parliament, you deal with that in parliament. No, we deal with that in our own locality. Try to reach compromises. Try to see, you know, okay, so we give you a little bit of this, you give us a little bit of that. That can only be done at the local level. And then we learn also 
to the kind of national level. You know, I can I can spend a lot of time with you discussing those issues, but I really would like to get to the uh, a little bit um, of conversation about the faculty. Great. And if you can tell us a little bit more about the the work the faculty is doing, <clears throat> and and what are your goals as the as the dean for the future? Wow, that's big. So you know, first of all, since I got faculty, which is in such excellent condition, I would just love not to make it worse. I know that. <laughs> all right, that's I, good. No, but you know, of course, I have uh, a lot of um, things that I would like to achieve. Our faculty is really excellent, um, and it's excellent on almost everything it does, on everything it does. You know, our students are the best, as, as I said, they, you know, reach really, like, if you want to make an impact, you need to come to Tel Aviv University because you will become, you know, the elite of the legal profession and of the business profession, of the political profession, you know, members of parliament, ministers, everything. Um, our research is top um, um, not research. Um, really, you know, our faculty, we got our training at the best law schools all over the world. Um, and we often in, were invited to teach, you know, at Harvard and Yale and Stanford and, and Berkeley and you name it, in NYU. Um, and I would like to maintain that and to even um, encourage that more. For that, we have excellent research centers, which always need more help. Uh, we just established the new Shamgar Center. Um, it's named after the chief, the late Chief Justice, Mayor Shamgar, and it's the Shamgar Center for Digital Law um, and Technology. That's fascinating. Exactly. So, you know, and, you know, I just attended yesterday an incredible uh, conference um, on artificial intelligence and the various challenges that it poses for law and for regulation and for ethics. Um, and, you know, we are having conferences and, and we, we assist the new generation of scholars. So we need, of course, you know, lots of scholarships and, and research funds. Um, we have um, excellent other research centers on legal history and on, and on animal rights and on corporate governance and corporate law, which again are kind of spearheading um, not just Israeli research, but also global research on these issues. So all of these research centers, uh, my role is just to make them work even better and to establish new ones that would again face the challenges. So for example, you know, a center on environmental law. Um, which is much needed, and uh, and you know, and I'm very much hoping that something like that would happen. I actually look at it in a broader sense of law and ecology, right? It's not just the environment; it's the whole ecology that we know is now under threat with our relationship, of course, with with animals, etc. Um, we also have um, an incredible thing in our faculty, which are called the legal clinics, um, which are committed to both pedagogy. It's kind of hands-on pedagogy, but also to social change. So our students take a clinic. A legal clinic is where they work together with a lawyer on issues ranging from human rights to environmental justice to criminal justice to assisting Holocaust survivors to issues of privacy. And in each of these clinics, the students actually deal with real cases, with real people under the guidance of a trained lawyer. Um, and again, these legal clinics are always, um, you know, um, in need of assistance. Um, we are proud of them. They're the best in the country. Our students are happy with them. Um, and, you know, the, um, the employers are also excited to have our students as having already a hands-on experience. Well, 
Professor Blanc, I, your, your plate is full. I mean, you just gave us an incredible overview of so many issues that your faculty is dealing with and the training is so eclectic and obviously top-notch. And so I think you're really on the cutting edge of your field and that's uh, commendable and admirable. That's what we're trying to do. That's, you know, that's why we came here. That's why we're in a public university. It's our duty for, you know, our citizens and for the state and, and for science. And I'm sure, you know, that you made many, many new fans today uh, because the people um, that are listening and watching us are probably as impressed as I am with you and with your work. And I'd like to thank you for being here. And, um, and as I do with, uh, with our excellent guests, I would uh, definitely be delighted to have you here again. I would love that too. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. And to our viewers and listeners back home, goodbye from Tel Aviv until our next episode. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomats.